Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on saxophonist and composer Javon Jackson. Javon sat with us in early October to talk about his film score for the Art World documentary with Peter Bradley, music which came out back in June 2023 on the saxophonist's Solid Jackson Records. Peter Bradley has had a 50-year career as an abstract artist, but one that saw him getting little acclaim until the last few years. In addition to his work as an artist, the daily practice of which is documented in the film, Bradley was a mover and shaker in various mid-late 20th century modern art scenes. His work is interconnected with his love of jazz, to the point that Javon calls Bradley a musician whose instrument is paint. The score for the film conjures Bradley's favorite jazz icons, Miles, Coltrane, and Jackson's former employer, Art Blakey. I had the opportunity to screen the film before speaking with Javon, and I fell in love with the subject, the art, and the score. I urge you to check out the music and Peter Bradley's art. I came to you as a performing artist, embarrassingly a little bit late, but I I saw you back in 2016 with Ron Carter and Billy Drummond at the Iridium, and what a great night of music. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. So you're in New York. I was. That was actually the last show I saw in New York before I moved to Seattle a few days later. Oh, wow. So it was a fitting fitting (laughs) send-off. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're here to talk about with Peter Bradley, okay. which I had the good fortune to be able to watch this weekend, and I'm still sort of metabolizing it, if it's fair to say that. Like a lot of people, I wasn't familiar with his work. It's so beautiful. One of the things that, as I was prepping for this discussion, one of the notions I came across a few times as people have started to write about the soundtrack was the way you and your collaborators channeled the music and the feel of the music that Peter loved and and loves. As a way into that discussion, I I wanted to talk a little bit and perhaps also set a little bit of context, because it's probably hard to have a conversation about all this without talking at least a little bit about Art Blakey, or or maybe it's a good starting point regardless. You you look at the the alumni list of the messengers and it's like, (laughs) it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's so incredible. It's so incredible to read the list of names. I'm curious about what perhaps you learned or took away from your own approach to finding talent and putting together an ensemble, either from your personal experience being recruited or chosen for the messengers or what you saw while you were there. You know, was there a lesson about talent that you took from Blakey? Absolutely. Number one is the artist itself, the person that you're building this relationship with professionally when you travel with them or the music, how you can grow together, how you can support one another in terms of helping each other know some of the things that you like or the tendencies that, not that you'll fall into, but the ability to be open-minded. And so I think that was something that Art really appreciated is open-mindedness and also 
He wanted each musician to the best of their ability to be as unique as possible. So he really didn't want anybody to be like anybody else. He appreciated if you liked someone else or if you quote unquote came from somebody else in terms of influences, but he really liked people to be their own people. And, and the very much the way he was, he was his own man. He had a lot of different artists that he liked as a drummer, whether it be Big Sid or Papa Joe Jones and uh, Chick Webb, those kind of artists, but he took them all and he made them art. So I think that's what he appreciated is the musician trying to do whatever he could or she could to be themselves. That's something that I appreciate. And any groups that I have is the artist is trying to be themselves and I'm not trying to get them to be like somebody else because you can't be like anybody else. And there's other, other things about art, just his commitment. He was committed to the music and it wasn't a superficial way. Music was his life. So he was committed to the music and he appreciated musicians who were all in and committed to learn whatever the music that we might be playing, really delve into it and really be committed to swinging. Did you have a sense at the time as to what he saw in you or was that ever articulated to you? Not really. Every artist he sees that they hopefully share some of the joy of playing the music that he shared. I mean, he's been around every artist that you can imagine. The fact that I was in the band was, I was just lucky enough to do that. But in terms of me knowing specifically what he liked about me, I would never have asked him. <laughs> so, I mean, I know he liked my tone, but beyond that, the fact that I was there was good enough. I, I don't want to belabor it for too long because there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I'm curious about that list of names I alluded to and the family, if you will, that it puts you in or the company it puts you in. Is there a sense of being an alumni? Do you recognize that in the other people who are still with us that played in the Messengers over the years? Is that a thing? Absolutely. It's a fraternity. It's a family, a brotherhood, or uh, not just brotherhood because they have sisters in the band. Joe Amber King was in the band, other women, but it's, it's used that word brotherhood as in humanhood of people. But sure, I mean, when I was in the uh, messages, I remember he wanted to play, and he mentioned maybe us during our rendition of Children of the Night, which was written by Ray Shorter. God rest his soul. And so when I, I said, oh man, Wayne, he could see the reverence I had from Wayne. He said, listen, don't worry about Wayne. That's why you're here. In other words, don't let the reverence that you have get in the way of you being you and it's your time now, and then after that'll be somebody else. But for me, I'll, he passed but while I was still with him. But the idea that, sure, you know, there's a incredible lineage. I mean, if I play the Village Vanguard, I know that I play there annually with John Coltrane was on that stage somewhere. Sonny Rollins was on that stage. Thelonious Monk was on that stage. Dexter Gordon, so forth and so on. Bill Evans. You have to be careful. And I, I think early in my life, I fell into that where you are such an awe that you can be a prisoner of the history as opposed to allowing the history to motivate you and inspire you to be yourself. And for a while, you might not be able to get out of your own way because you're so in awe of the history, which you should be in awe of the history, but you still have to live it the best way you can, if that makes sense.
it's always seemed to me that it's a unique and almost special, uh, I want to choose my words carefully, I'm going to say like a special burden that a jazz artist bears in terms of the history, because so often, if I'm a classical pianist, I don't have to compete with Mozart. There's no actual evidence of what he left behind as a performer or whomever it is. What about Rubenstein? It's fair, but I think more in terms of the composers are all still alive. The original interpreters, or at least earlier in your career, a lot of them were still alive and like they're still out there working. And then you go into this context like with our and you're playing a Wayne Shorter song. And I guess the point he was saying was, I could just go get Wayne Shorter if I want Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter would play with our Blakey. <laughs> no, that's not what he was saying. What he was saying is Wayne did it. Now we're going to build upon it. Don't worry about Wayne, because that's why you're here. In other words, time has moved on. So whatever your rendition is, because sure he loved Wayne Shorter, but things have to move on. And as you began to be a little bit more me, I'm saying that and so rhetorically, as you begin to understand this, you're not competing with anybody. We're creating. So we create with those individuals in mind. I could never be Coleman Hawkins. I'm standing here because of Coleman Hawkins. Coleman Hawkins is smiling down on all of us because we're trying to push forward what he did. What starts to happen, though, is we have publications, and no disrespect to them, they get us, okay, well, who's number one this year? Who's number one this year? None of that really matters. All that matters is, are you doing your best to honor tradition, honor the tradition in your way? And you leave it up to whoever else to make comments. Well, I didn't like this. I didn't like this. That's none of my business. But for many years, a man in his 20s, it did affect me in a way. Well, I'd read an article. Wow, man, I worked really hard. The guy said, oh, man, you just sound like so-and-so, so-and-so. It takes a lot of work just to sound like so-and-so, so-and-so. So what I've been able to do is that's none of my business. Even if you like me, that's really none of my business. So we make it our business that people like us. But if they don't like us, that we don't want to make it our business. That's none, none of our business. Our business is to be the best version of ourselves every single day. Mm. And so we have people where they are for whatever reason that they have to make a critique. But it's the same in basketball. Someone's always going to be compared to Michael Jordan. In other artist areas, there's going to be people that are always going to say, well, you're not as good as this Brishnikov. Or something. So that always happens. But it's the artist has to make a decision for themselves to say, I'm not going to be concerned with that. All I can do is be the best version of what I can be. In the film, we'll get to, well, Peter Bradley, I met him when I was at R. Blakey. Well, he liked R. Blakey. Well, some of the music might have hints of R. Blakey. Well, I love R. Blakey. Has some of it hints hints of Miles. I love Miles. Well, some of it hints of John Coltrane. But as I think you may mention, I didn't have a collaborator. Collaborator is me. But I knew that these are uh, things that would evoke a certain a feeling that would help tell the story because those are the kind of folks that Peter Bradley was friends with and he enjoys their music. So we did try to make it have some of that flavor. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And as, as an artist who has now accomplished enough and, and honed their craft enough and been on the scene long enough that you've gone through a lot of those stages. You were the young man who worked hard just to be perceived as sounding like so-and-so. And because I think that's just an artist evolution, right? You find your voice over time. 
from where you are now to create this soundtrack where you do now almost intentionally now want to evoke some of those influences and, and let them seep in a little more consciously or specifically, was that intimidating or is it scary because you don't want to mimic? Like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is it must take a very high degree of craft to be able to call on that stuff and utilize it without getting subsumed by it. Would that be fair? Well, it'd be like, say, you'd ask me to write a piece of music based on a color, which is what Peter talks about in there. If the color was blue, I might play something, but it might evoke a certain sound of an artist that could be reminiscent. As human beings and every evolving artist, we're going to come from somewhere. Everyone comes from somewhere. People say, I don't sound like anybody. Yes, everyone sounds or has a reminiscent of somebody. I don't know what your parents look like, but you look like one of them. That's just the way this thing works. But over time, you have your own thoughts, but you still come from somewhere. So it's not a bad thing to come from someone anywhere, anywhere because we all have to be happy to say, okay, if you ask Bob Dylan, did he love Josh White? He's going to say, of course I did. And so he has some of that in him, but he's still Bob Dylan. Other artists we can mention, I mean, Aretha Franklin loved Donna Washington. Did she have Donna Washington to her and her style? Of course she did, but she was still Aretha. You have some special people who are able to find their voice quicker than others, and that's a, a special thing about certain artists. But most artists that you listen to, you can say, oh, it reminds me of this person. That's natural in the trajectory of the way this thing called music progresses. So for me, yeah, it just means that you listen to a lot of styles of music, and so if the film worker says, hey, right here, I'd love to have this kind of inflection. There was one piece that he wanted something that would evoke Pittsburgh, maybe the style that could get us to thinking about Earl Garner. So there was a piece that we called Earl Garner. I mean, but in my mind, it's called Easy Peasy, which paid tribute to that style of Earl Garner. But in the end, you have to be yourself. Again, some people are able to do that quicker than others, but it's not that much of a challenge once you realize that we're all on the same side of the field. See, we're running the race together. So our Blakey runs the race. Once he can't run the race, he passes the baton to the next era or drummer, and then they run the race, and then they pass it. And then whether it's Coleman Hawkins, Sonny Rollins, to, to Wayne Shorter, so forth and so on, Brandon Marcellus, then to Javon and on to somebody. It's, but we're all running the same race. We're not really competing. But I think sometimes we get caught up in the, because the music is about commerce. Everyone's making money. You have to make money to survive. It's more than art. It's a commerce. It's, it's commercial. It's commerce. If you go into the music store, we used to be, or if you go online and you want to buy something, you got all these artists. You can buy Javon. You can buy Charlie Parker. You can buy Coleman Hawkins. You can buy uh, Art Tatum, Art Farmer, Louis Armstrong. See what I mean? So they, oh, we'll buy this over this. And all of a sudden it feels, oh, well, am I competing? No, I'm not competing. I'm hopeful that someone will consider me. But I've come to the point that I could never compete with Louis Armstrong. You're going to lose seven days out of seven days. As I should. He started the music. And it was a, a big proponent and what we know today and what he stood for in the whole sphere of him as an individual. So all we can try to do is aspire to that, 
Well, we have to be able to be ourselves and be comfortable with what that sounds like or what that is. And be comfortable and be okay with not everybody liking you. This is not going to happen. That's something as you get a little older, you're a little bit more comfortable with. But again, you're younger and you read these articles. Oh, man, this guy said this thing. That wasn't my attention. Yeah, but him writing, that's none of my business. I'm not trying to be cold with it, but I didn't ask the writer's opinion before I did the music. So why should their opinion per se matter now? But it's propaganda. It's for us to be able to have a conversation for that there's a, a topic that can have a larger consequence than just making a CD in and that's it. There's got to be a talking point. So the talking point is not bad, but the talking point does not need to have the value placed with the artist that I think sometimes we do place on it. Does that make it sense? Yeah, absolutely. And something you said earlier ties into it, which is if you're going to listen at all to what's being said, there's going to be good things said and bad things said. And then you put yourself in the position of deciding, am I only going to believe the good stuff? And then I disagree all the time with the bad stuff. Like say, so you're sort of better off not having to have that negotiation with yourself constantly. And it would ultimately just lead to second guessing. It would undermine your work if you let it seep in. Well, but even the great Deion Saunders, the Sanders, you know, the uh, college coach, I'm from Colorado. He was on a, I saw a press conference and one of the guys in the, in the artist, you know, we call it the reporter's role. He says, hey, I remember you. I read some of that stuff you said. We're all guilty at some point reading those things and can't wait maybe to see. Well, in that situation, there's a winner and a loser, so he gets to. But I don't believe anybody that makes music is losing. Yeah. See, that's why I'm American Idol and those kinds of things. I'm not saying they against those because a lot of people watch that and enjoy that. But competitions that we have, that'd be like saying we're about to get Earl Garner and Art Tatum as young men to sit them in a room and all these incredible artists and pianists during that time. And who wins? Ridiculous. For me, I don't believe there should be a winner or a loser. It can't be. How can I say that my empathy or the way I, what I feel about a certain piece of material, what I bring to it is any worse or any better than another person has had their set of experiences? Because we're all hopefully trying to bring our own particular ancestral stream to it. Whatever the history that we have lived and we're experiencing, we're trying to bring that Hopefully, and we're emoting and there's enough emotional girth to it and intellectual girth. And then also that it's swinging, which really doesn't come up enough. And the witness says it all the time, but it's true. Is it swinging? Does it feel good? Every time we play, it should be about, okay, wait a minute. Did he play that here? Oh, let's analyze this. Wait a minute. If we look back at what the music has really stood for and what the best have done, does it come in that spirit? But again, that's not for anyone to say that, well, this person didn't have a certain amount of personal joy from it. So I won't rob them of their joy because it might not have moved me the way it moved that individual. We just leave it for hopefully the folks that spend the money that support us. Hopefully there'll be some appreciation there for what we all do, hopefully.
is something I've talked about with other artists here, which is people often forget. And I think it's actually coming back around with a lot of contemporary music. But I think we forgot for the better part of a generation or more that jazz was dance music and it was in dance halls. And before it was in the small club being analyzed and everybody watching every note and then writing about it and talking about it, it was the dance and the party and the swing. And ultimately, there's been so many greats that have been able to do both and combine it. And it's not a it's not an either or thing. I and mean, I certainly don't view the world that way. But that disconnection from that lineage and from that knowledge of the lineage, I think it, it made everybody very inward for a while. I don't know if that resonates for you. It does resonate. I mean, you have sometimes people say, oh, man, they're playing jazz in their suit and tie. Why can't, wear, why can't I wear a suit and tie? It was good enough for Edward Ellington was good enough for some of the great artists we like to see. They want to wear a nice suit and tie. What's wrong with that? Why does that mean? Well, you're trying to be like something that you're not. Well, how do you know what I am? What should we do? You want us to wear jeans? No, we don't want to wear jeans at the stage. We feel that the best way to represent this art form is that we say we want to put on a nice vine. That was good enough for Cal Basie. It was good enough for Coleman Hawkins. Why can't we celebrate that when someone says, oh, why are you guys wearing a suit and tie? What are you trying to prove? We're not trying to prove anything. And that comes from people of all different colors, no one particular color. But the point of it is, that's how I want to present. But again, I've learned that more and more. Yeah, I think a suit and tie, I think the audiences do that. When they spend a certain amount of money, that's how I want to present it. And I want to let them know that's the way we want to present the music. Yeah. But it's none of my business. And so I've worked hard on it. It's a great book I just love. It's called The Four Agreements. The four agreements are be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personal. Always do your best and don't make assumptions. It's pretty good. That's an aspiration. Yeah. That's yeah, it's a great book. So, but that second one is good. Nothing is personal. And if someone says something about me, it's not personal, but that's a very tough one. And you've tried to work that in any part of your life, nothing is personal. It's a hard concept. It's a colossal amount of empathy, too, that is required to have that view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We do have a certain sense of support or patience. We're, we're at our best. And so I think that's what is trying to get you to aspire to, at that notion of being at your best and realizing, well, hey, oops, they made a mistake, too. Yeah. One of the things that, that I read that you spoke about was bonding with Peter over the love of clothes. In the film, he talks about his love of clothes being instilled in him by his mom at a very early age, having an expectation of how he would look and present himself. And I wonder, where, where did your love come from? Much of my parents, my father, liked to go to so, certain social events and parties that my mother and father would go to. And for Christmas, my mother, we'd get together and we'd buy him a nice pair of shoes and things like that. So... So that's where I came. I used to watch him. He was good with putting colors together. Mm. As I've gotten older, I do colors and different stylistic things. So probably came from there. And it's a typical thing that, you know, my, in my family, I had another uncle, in addition to my father's brother, who liked to dress and things like that. And you're around great musicians and you've seen them pictures and there was a lot of, of suave that you could say it was attached to them. So kind of in that way. A lot's been made in the in some of the early commentary I've seen about the film around Peter's quote of every sound has a color. 
Had you previously given any thought to that idea? Had that been a resonance for you in the past? Or is that a just curious about your, the relationship between sound and, and color for you? Oh, um, I agree with that, actually. I, I remember having conversations with other musicians about maybe when you play, does, do you see a color? Or is there a color in your mind? Or when you write, is there a color that comes to mind, depending on what you write or maybe what key you're in? Could you equate that with a color? I actually agree with color and certain instruments, certain keys giving me a sense of a color. For some reason, G major makes me think about green or G subs or something like that. Or D flat makes me think of like not brown. What's the color that's a little darker than Ted, but not brown, that kind of color because it's very mm -hmm. soulful, like an earth tone. I do agree with that idea that a color can cut. For me, anyway, that, that that can work that way. Do you ever use color or any other like prompts as a tool for directing musicians like around an improvisation? I, I've talked to other artists here who use all kinds of prompts. They'll pick a theme or an idea or a headline or just something to say, let's start with this in our consciousness. And it's not something we have to meditate on or obsess over, but this is the thing. It's going to color where we start. And I wonder, does any kind of prompt color or otherwise have a role in improvisation for you? Sure. Um, I don't say color, but I mean, we could be playing a song and I might say, we're going to pretend we're in the jungle on this section. On this section, we're going to pretend we're in the city. You always have little prompts in that way or what do you call it? Ways to give another perspective on something that just the note itself or just a figure. I've had that before. All right. Yeah. When you were talking about how you got to know Peter, as an artist over the years, how there was a section of time where you really weren't aware of that side of him. And you referred to him as almost like a big brother or uncle figure. Yeah, uncle. I hear those words and everybody brings a different idea of what that means. But those are specific words. Like an uncle has a role in someone's life. What did that mean for you? What did having another uncle, what kind of uncle did Peter Bradley imply? Well, so you got to remember when I started playing professionally in, in Denver, I'm saying I'm 16 or 17, you're hanging out with guys who are your father, or they could be either the same age as your father, same age as your uncle, same age as your aunt. And so sometimes Peter would say things that my uncle would say to me, same kind of phrases, the same kind of thoughts, or don't do that. Well, you're 21 years old and you're getting direction because you're a young person. Like I say, I, I became a man working with Art Blakey. I joined at 21. I didn't know anything. I literally went through my manhood working with the messengers and traveling, getting my first apartment, getting my first credit card, getting things like that. I didn't have any of that. So you're literally with him and him being able to help you get those things. So he's like a grandfather because Art was the same age as my grandmother, right? So my grandmother was actually born in 1919. So was Art. So it's like, it's a grandfather. And again, you've been African-American. There were some things that he said, just I've heard him before. Like a lot of musicians in the band had heard art. And, but he had a spirit that he was still the same age as me. But then sometimes he could say some things based on his history and experience. He could realize that he obviously was from a different generation. Same with Peter, where I would be with him. And I remember one time he had a beautiful ascot on. I said, man, that's a bad ascot. He took it off and gave it to me. I don't know many peers that would have done that, but my uncle would have. Yeah. 
So in that way, those are the kinds of things that he would do. Or if we would go out to eat, he would always buy the meal or things like that. So that's what I mean by being this kind of a special kind of individual. Whereas even when I see him now, it's still, hey, what do you need? Or how are you doing? Or it's that kind of a family kind of a perspective where he's really interested. How are you doing? It's not, hey, how are you doing? You move it on. He actually looks at you. How are you doing? He wants to discuss that. And so how's the family? How's your children? That's what I mean, like the way a, a family member, and we spent some quality time together. We just never talked about his army. We were busy talking about music because he doesn't talk about Miles. He loves to talk about Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane and Max Roach. So it was always a musical conversation. After our passed away, I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm doing a recording. He said, where are you going to be recording? I remember so doing a recording once with Cedar Walton and Jimmy Cobb and Christian McBride's quartet record. He said, where's it going to be? Well, he showed up. He just popped over. After that, we'd go get something to eat. Then after a while, we just fell out of touch. I moved to New Jersey, and then he moved upstate New York. We just fell out of touch. And then as fit would have it, we kind of ran back into each other a few years ago. I went to his house, and then I saw the studio. I said, wow, I never knew that. It, it, it was innocently that he just never really discussed himself. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. I want to let you know that we have the first of a small line of Spotlight On collectibles available at spotlightonpodcast.com slash store. Just in time to treat yourself or someone you care about to a gift this upcoming holiday season. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. There's something really beautiful in how you describe that role that an older man can play for a young man. And I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough amongst men. I think a lot of men are looking for that. And even if they have a strong father and and lots of men don't, but this idea that more male figures of your parents' age in your life can bring so many, because your parents can, they can give you a lot, but you know, they're still your parents. They might not tell you like your new composition sucks and you got to work harder or, (laughs) you know, they they just might not tell you all the things you need to hear because they're your parents. But having those other voices, it's so powerful for a young man in particular to have that. I'm very happy for you that you had that. Well, yeah, I mean, most of us in that are young musicians that are playing, if you have Wynton Marcellus, there's probably a time when everybody in the band was older than them. So for me, for many years, every band I was in, I was the youngest person in the band. When I worked with Art, I was the youngest. And then when I became, well, Peter Warston, yeah, Peter's a year older than me. And when I started working with Elvin Jones, I was the youngest. When I played with Charlie Hayden, I was the youngest. When I played with Freddie Hubbard, I was the youngest. Or Cedar. I was always the youngest person in the band. You watching and you're listening and you're learning and, and you're picking up on things that inherently you want to aspire to. And some of it you don't want. You just leave that alone. Well, that's just like in life. But you're right. If my mom heard something she didn't like, she'd say, hey, you ain't playing pretty. My mom got to to always says, hey, play pretty. And she talked to the club and she said, you're not playing pretty. That's not pretty up there. Yeah, but I'm working on this. Yeah, but it doesn't sound pretty. And then she put on Coltrane playing a cinnamon moose. See how pretty that is? See, my mom love I'm a Jamal. And I heard all these things around the house. And she said, see how pretty that is? You played pretty. My wife can tell you, she would always say play pretty. I did have some family members that would tell me that that's not really there. <laughs> yeah. See how being simple. But again, they're still your biggest supporter. But no, they were. A mom would be honest because they they were big jazz fans. So they, they, knew, they knew the standard. 
at least sonically, maybe not the ins and outs, but they knew they knew the music. Something else that stood out for me in, in watching the film, and I, I had to laugh, I wanted to bring this up to you, was it was Peter's sound system, right? Like those the speakers and that that in the wall unit he has with his beautiful stereo equipment. The, the thing that made me laugh was I was thinking back as a young man before I really had anything. I was just getting started out in life. But I always managed to find a way to have a halfway decent stereo, you know, and I can remember like moving into an apartment and the first thing that would get unpacked would be, you know, the room would get set up around the stereo. It's a real manifestation of this is how important music is to me, right? It's not about the stereo. That's just the delivery mechanism. It's the thing that allows you to channel all of that. I don't know. I guess I don't really have a question there around that, but I do wonder, like, do you relate to that at all? I guess you were touring, right? You were always on the road. Did you have time to be a listener? Yes, I still listen a lot. Yeah, I think uh, especially at that time, I needed to be listening as much as I was playing. And there's a, there's a lot of great music out there by a lot of great artists. So, yeah, I, I, I really think it's important to be a big time listener. To really listen for enjoyment, then we listen for maybe a critical analysis of things, but I need to be listening. I think young people probably don't listen enough because now you can go on YouTube and you can listen for 20 minutes. But I mean, like listening where you just listen to one CD or one recording that was recorded on one day and just live with that one recording in and out every track. So I think the musicians were really doing that a lot more than and really putting the music under the microscope, we may say. So yes, I definitely listen. Absolutely. It reminds me of something I saw you say in another interview, and it also something that that was evocative in the film was there was just there was a moment where Peter was rifling through a, a, a stack of CDs and he was picking them up and talking about them. I noticed in the pile of CDs, you know, he had he had the jazz canon, right? He had the mid-century canon of stuff, everything you would expect and more. But I saw in the pile of CDs there was Led Zeppelin four, and I just thought it's. People forget that a music fan doesn't necessarily worry about genre any more than an artist worries about genre, right? I've talked to so many artists who get presented to me like I see a press release and it'll say, here's a jazz album or here's an electroacoustic experimental thing or whatever it is. But as artists and listeners, it's just, does it enter my ear? You know what I mean? Or does my ear not want to hear it? And you talked about how you grew up you were surrounded by black music just because that's the radio stations and their parents loved jazz. But as you grew older, you became exposed to rock music. And again, I'm projecting a little bit of my experience. So I, I'm curious to hear how yours is different. There are always throughout my life, people who turn me on to music, even if it's just for a short period of time or one record that opens a rabbit hole. And I wonder, how did you learn to explore basically a boundless genre like was somebody turning you on to music or were you just like killing time on the road saying i've heard of this band but i never heard their music i'm going to check it out like how does that work for you in a couple of different ways first of all you're in a band with people that are listening to different kinds of music when we're the jazz messengers and, and robin eubanks would listen to led zeppelin uh the thing is called the grunge the crunch yeah, the crunch yeah crunch i never heard it funky as hell that's why he let me in. I said, oh, man, that sounds kind of like, um, no disrespect, poor man's James Brown. They said, take to the bridge. I don't mean to be mean that way, but that's how I became aware of Led Zeppelin. Well, Art Blakey's attorney loved Bob Dylan, loves him. 
He's gone now. He loved him a lot. So he started turning me on to Bob Dylan. But like I said, when I grew up, I just heard the Temptations, the Four Tops, the Staple Singers, and then all types of jazz. We had some Santana in the house. We'd be out there. No, I didn't hear Pink Floyd. I didn't hear Van Morris. I didn't hear those kinds of artists, Bruce Springsteen, or I, I didn't hear them. I might have heard it in a way, but it didn't. It wasn't in my house where when I got up in the morning on Saturday where I had to clean, I would get up and it would be lined up points yet. Mama Jamal, that's what we literally swept the house to. My mom put on those records. She'd take that off and then she'd put on Miles Davis, literally these records steaming at the, steaming with the Miles Davis Quintet. So then I heard that. Or my dad loved tennis saxophone. I heard a lot of Gene Ammons. And I heard Way Out West. My father had that. Charlie Parker. So I just, those are the kinds of things I heard. But yeah, as you get older, you definitely want to expand and, and see what else is out there. Your parents had phenomenal taste. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, my mother was not really any kind of professional performer. Well, she used to play piano in church, and she was good enough to play piano where, like, my best friend at that time, he's still my best friend in high school, when he had to do a recital, she played piano and accompanied him. So she, she was pretty good, but not incredibly good, but she was proficient, but she loved music. You're right. So I heard all those things, and they used to go out and purchase a lot of records. Those things were kind of in the house, and that's kind of, I started for me. My father, I was upstairs practicing some of the little books that you get at 10 or 11, whether it's uh, Marianne Little Lamb or whatever it was, and he just knocked on my door. I was practicing, hey, you think you can play this? And he gave me a record. It was a Gene Abbott record. Mm. He said, can you learn that? Did you play that? And I said, I don't know. So I had a little bit of record player, and I put it on, slowed it down to 33 instead of, no, 16 and a half instead of 33 because I couldn't hear the notes fast enough, and I started ruining his records, and I started learning solos. But that was because of him. But again, as I started going out, and you want to be able to say, at least I did want to be able to say, I've heard something. I like going to a restaurant sometimes. Hey, you want to try some tiramisu? I've never tried it before. Let me try it. Oh, I still don't like it. Whatever it is, try it. And the traveling is the big equalizer for me, was a big equalizer because you're going to all these various countries and you're used to just having chicken or beef and you get these other places, some other exotic dishes and you have another country and you want to try what that delicacy is. And so it's just like music. Our Blake would say, if, if you put down another musician, you're putting yourself down. Why can't I listen to the Allman Brothers or... On the artists that I ended up recording, Frank Zappa, and recording the artists that I'd never heard for. Once I started hearing, I said, wow, there's some stuff there. I liked it. Sometimes it's just the exposure. And I, like I said, I might have said in audibles before, my parents weren't racist. They just had what they had. They just were somewhat segregated in terms of the music they were listening to. And that's what they listened to. So yeah. it's amazing for me that a lot of people don't know jazz artists, right? And I went to college and I met musicians, I won't name their name. Hey, man, what do you listen to, Gerard? I listen to Jack McDuff. Oh, who's that? They hadn't yeah. heard of Jack McDuff. George Smithson was the guitar player, but they hadn't heard the record. So yeah, this person was of color, but it just depends on what you're exposed to. Well, it goes back to something you said earlier, too, because you can't escape the role that the commercial forces play in that, too, right? Like radio gets separated into categories, and it's just the way... Not even just the commercial forces. It's the way our minds make sense of the world. We put things into buckets and then 
unfortunately, sometimes those buckets build walls around them. And that's where it gets dangerous. It's okay to have the categories as a shorthand for communicating. But when you start to, when they turn into barriers, that's the problem. Yeah, but everything's coming from something that they've really, at the end of the day, this American music pretty much coming from a few different places. Obviously, European influences everything, but a lot of it's coming from a certain tradition and it just is split and, and, and morphed out. But the biggest thing is just to listen and see what you can get from. There's always going to be something that you can get from any music you're listening to. But if you want to take the time to tear it down, of course you can do that. But then you can flip it and just take time and say, okay, wow, you know, if I had to take something from Taylor Swift, what could I take and add or make as part of maybe my musical presentation or add or some things that's being done in that music to make it successful on this large scale? What could I take from it? Of course, you could take some things from it. You could say, oh, man, that's just music for the masses. Okay, you could take some time to see what made it have the success or the viability it does if you want to take the time. music from this soundtrack make it into your live set as somebody with the body of work you now have how do you reckon with your own lineage your own catalog will you perform this stuff or how do songs come and go for you that way right definitely we're performing some of those things now when you go through a period in your life when you're performing certain things that you might record and you feel a connection to and you record those pieces could be for many, many years, then hopefully you never lose the uh, idea or the uh, desire to keep writing and keep creating. And then hopefully you'll have some other original pieces of music that you might want to play in addition to other things that you might enjoy, some gems, because everyone's not, in my humble opinion, Thelonious Monk or way shorter. So I think sometimes you can utilize some incredible music that's been done before or been written by some incredible artists, maybe uh, maybe a reharmonization or a reworking of it to fit, again, where I'm coming from as an artist. But yeah, I think it's important to play your music. Again, you start to find out a lot about yourself when you start to compose because you're only going to start, you're going to start composing the things that and the sounds that you hear and that you like. And then to get more of a broader perspective or as a writer or ability to, to write maybe in a more expansive way, what do you have to do? I feel listen to other types of music so other influences can come see. Because if you just listen, then it's like investing. If you're investing in one thing, 
and that one thing goes belly out, what's going to happen? So the musician has to be just like the investor. What do you have to do? Diversify. So I have your money in eight or nine different things, or five or six, as opposed to one. So it's very much like that. You have to open yourself up and spread yourself across some different situations. You know, you've you've mentioned a few times in our conversation, as a lot of jazz artists do, the notion of tradition and lineage and being part of something that's come before you and that you're now part of passing that baton as well and empowering young people. My perception is that you're also spreading this way in terms of other forms, the work with Nikki Giovanni and this work with Peter. How do you view not only the music tradition, but this sort of, I don't know, is it a, a, a black cultural tradition that you're now sort of embracing more or exploring more or collaborating with more? Is there a there or am I, or is this just a coincidence that there's two projects in a row with artists from other fields? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm been collaborating. There's a couple other collaborations I have that are, that are coming up that are definitely not of an African-American connection per se. But Nikki, I'm a fan. I met her. I'm at the University of Hartford. I'm the chair of the Jack and McClay Institute. And I invited her for Black History Month because I felt the university could be doing a better job in terms of bringing artists. So rather than complain, I just started bringing some artists. The Dr. Cornell West, I'm saying, I'm happy he's a friend. So he was first person when I got there. Hey, would you mind coming for Black History Month? But this is for the university, not just for the jazz department or for music. So Cornell came then the next year, Sonia Sanchez and Philip Poet as well. Then uh, Angela Davis came, then Michael Eric Dyson, then Nikki Giovanni. I'm happy to report that Nikki and Angela, I both asked the university would they bestow upon them honorary doctorates, and they did. So they both received honorary doctorates when they were there. But yeah, when I met Nikki when she was there, it just so happened that in the auditorium, music was being played in the auditorium, piped in the auditorium, was Charlie Hayden and Hank Jones, is a record they did called Steal Away. And it's spirituals. And she just was listening and loved it and said, wow, I'd love to hear more of that jazz and spirituals. We went to dinner that night, and I said, hey, I'm going to be in touch. I got an idea for you, I think, maybe. And in my mind, I'd already said, wow, what if she would be willing to pick some music and I'll record the spirituals that she picked. So I called her two days later and said, hey, would you pick 10 spirituals that'll be my next record? She said, I'd love to. Mm. That's how that happened. So yeah, obviously, she's had a lot of meaning in my life because I've been a fan, but she's a major jazz fan as well. So the connection is closer than one would think. And again, when I'm around her, she talks as if we could be peers. But the next moment, I go, wait a minute. Sound like my aunt or sounds like my mom, you know, and that kind of connection about me. Did you get home okay? Be careful there. So when you, so is that, but she's still not my mother, but there's a sense of family with her. Does that make sense? That's beautiful. And the same thing with Peter. It's that same kind of connection. So I guess it might be looked up as cultural, but I do have some relationships with people that are not African American and it's a very, family-oriented kind of relationship where they've seen me up close and personal with me and my family, and I've been with them, where it's really not guarded, if, if that makes sense. 
I don't know how to, to totally qualify your, your question. I hope I did. But in this instance, there seems to be some of that uniqueness that would, would, would happen to do with culture. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. great because it's a collaboration that really helps because it's phrases that use a lot is interdisciplinary. So it's jazz meets um, a poet or jazz with a painter, abstract painter, but I just see it as artistry. So I still see it as artists. Whether I remember somebody at the university said, why would Javon Jackson bring Angela Davis here? She's not a musician. She's an artist. But that's somebody that either has another perspective about what she is and what I am instead of realizing that artists like that, say Langston Hughes and the music, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. James Baldwin and musicians go together like peanut butter and jelly. And I don't like peanut butter and jelly, actually. But the point of it is they go together, but so someone now says, wait, they don't fit. Of course they fit. Of course they fit. Artists and dialogue will fit. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. a little bit about the importance to you and to your work of being a label owner. It's something I see more and more with artists of all types. Whenever I see that happening, my first reaction is, are we asking our artists now to also have to be business people and marketers and accountants? And I get everybody has support and infrastructure, but like, what is that experience like for you being now a business person and an artist? And an educator and a father and all the other things you have to be. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that. Now, I, I come from both sides. So I've been with two or three labels. I was with Blue Note, I think, for five CDs I did. And then I was with Palmetto, and I did four or five with them. And I've been with other labels before that, smaller. But let me say this. Whether the musician knows that you're a marketer and you're a composer and you have to be your own agent, being a, a musician... And a businessman, they're not separate. They're all there together. And so you have to understand, you you have to be your own accountant too. You have to make sure you do your taxes. All the things we're talking about, if you make it all art, you're going to miss out. You're going to be left out of the picture. So yes, if you can invest and you have the money to make an investment in your career regarding owning your own, your works and, and having a label and such, sure. But it's something that you you can work toward. But a lot of the folks I watched, and Bradford, who's a close friend of mine, he started a label. So I said, wow, 
And other artists, I've mentioned a set of for a long time. Hey, you should have your own label. And then Sonny Rollins has had a label for years and recording his shows and things like that. So I think it's a, a natural progression. Again, there's an investment there. You have to invest in the musicians. You have to invest in the studio. You got to find the engineer. And then you got to mass produce the CD. Then you got to find someone who can help you make it available throughout the world. And then if you really want to do it right, you want to have a publicist. That's how we found each other because I'm a publicist. You have a radio person. So it's a, it's just a, it's a machine. But you can say, oh, man, I don't have the money. You got to invest in something. So why not invest in yourself? But that's, a, that's, that's something as you build into that. But yes, you have to be everything. I never thought of it. But when I look at some of these artists that were very much did things themselves or were very successful. The Art Blakey's of the world, bad agents from time to time, or which are well, great artists. I think Dizzy Gillespie booked himself from time to time, or they were their booking agents, or the, the great Ray Brown, they had agents, but also they knew how to do the business themselves if they, they need to. So I think that's something that young artists need to think about more and more, get involved with the business. And they'll say, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to practice. Well, one time I was practicing. At this particular point in my life, I had a, a little group, not a little group. I was working with the great Les McCann, and we were doing a project called Swiss Movement Revisited, which is a famous recording he did with Eddie Harris. I knew Eddie, God rest his soul. And we started to do some performances with Les, and Les's management, who I would always keep abreast of things that were going on because Les was gracious enough to go out on tour with me. One particular day, I was practicing, and say it was 4 o'clock, and I was supposed to reached back out to somebody and I forgot to call a presenter. And then at that particular time also in the day, Les's manager called me and said, how's everything going? I said, I just missed a call. I was supposed to speak to a presenter. I said, man, I'm practicing all the time and I forget, but you know, man, I, I, sometimes I don't want to make the calls. I just want to practice. And he said something which was funny, but it was actually made sense. He said, well, if you don't have anywhere to play, what's the sense in practice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. When we were young, we want to practice a lot. But eventually, yeah, the bottom line is you want to play somewhere. So I was mad that I had to stop to make this call. But that's why you're practicing to be somewhere. It was a funny thing. So, yeah, the, the, the young musician needs to know they need to do everything and learn how it works on the ground floor. And if you're fortunate enough or that's your destiny, and if that's your goal, then you'll have an agent or a manager and I have my feelings about how all those things work, but it depends on the individual. But the bottom line is you have to learn and then after that you need help because you can't do it all by yourself in a vacuum. Over time, you can miss out on some opportunities by not collaborating or working with other individuals who are connected because we all need each other for this music to continue to grow. I need you. You need me. We need Ambrae Wade. We need the other folks that the, the club and the club owner and all that stuff. And within there, there's the folks who have all the highest quality, in my opinion, and you have some that are not of the highest quality, but they're all there for a reason. So you can't have only one 90 degree days. Well, you wouldn't appreciate 90 until you have a 10 degree day. So you gotta have the 10 to appreciate the 90. So you gotta have the people with the highest professional standard with the folks that have no standard. <laughs> like, 
you got to have both, correct? Yeah, yeah. Just hope you get the mix right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but at some point, you're going you're gonna to come in contact with all of it. But remember, even the person at the bottom, believe it or not, they're doing the best they can. Thank you so much for making time for this. I, I've so much enjoyed talking with you, and I love the record. I love the movie, and it's just great to have more art. So thank you. I appreciate you. And yeah, let's do it again. I love it. Thank you so much, Javon Jackson and Peter Bradley. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.